Thank you, worship team, again for the songs of praise and uh, amen, hallelujah. Praise God for the salvation, the confidence that we have in Christ to know that our sins are forgiven because of his work upon the cross. And that is uh, uh, just an appropriate uh, uh, theme as we come to the word of God this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. Uh, warm welcome to all our visitors who are with us, our first-time guests or returning guests as well. Uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, joy to, uh, that you would join us to worship the Lord together. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 is where we'll be today. Luke 7, 36 to 50. It's a good chunk of text, and I'll be reading the text within uh, the, the sermon today. So Luke chapter 7, just as a kind of just a, uh, just a comment uh, for those of us uh, uh, who maybe you came and you, you were here for the, the call to worship. Uh, there's a other passage in the parallel passage in Matthew 26 and, and uh, Mark 14, I believe, uh, that are uh, very close and similar. And some people have thought uh, over the years that maybe that those are the same as this passage that we're at today. But there are just enough differences in it, just never, whereas timing, uh, that invocation of Simon, uh, the, just the exchange between who's talking, Jesus, who Jesus is talking to, that it, uh, it's best to understand uh, this event as being a different event, but yet both events uh, convey very similar ideas. There's this, this woman who comes and just uh, showers Jesus with a very extravagant gift uh, as a display of her love uh, for him. So we do see that theme, okay? Uh, but anyways... What's always neat is when we come to Luke, and we, as we've been studying Luke, you just every once in a while come to those gems. That you, you, if it were not for the Gospel of Luke, you would not find this, this story. And this is one of those passages where we find this unique story to Luke's account where you know he includes it because he's trying to remind his reader, Theophilus, his, and the readers of, of the Scripture today, ourselves, that these things are written down so that we who believe, who have been taught about Jesus, might know for certain, might have assurance about who Jesus is. And today's text, we're going to really be encouraged by uh, knowing uh, who Jesus is and, and how we can have confidence in, 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 uh, uh, in, real, in believing and loving him because he has come to forgive us of our sins. Anyways, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50 is where we'll be today. Uh, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises within. Lord, certainly your word is truth. Uh, you do not err. All that you speak comes to pass. There's not a, a jot or tittle that, that is not true. And Father, we thank you that your word uh, and your promises are our are, are assurances, our confidence as we come to your word this morning. And we do pray that, Lord, you would cause your word to sanctify us in your truth, cause us to refine us in our love for you, to make us more like the kind of uh, followers of Christ that you wish us to be. And Father, we, we pray that your word, just as you promised, would go forth today, it not return void, that it would accomplish exactly that which you purpose your word to do in the life of every hearer of the word gathered here today. And Father, we pray that as a, as a whole, as we proclaim your word, may you be glorified, and may you be particularly glorified through the response of your church to your word, and that we would take your word to uh, not only our city of San Francisco, but to the ends of the earth. God, we thank you uh, that we can pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question, uh, just a, a, a pretty pointed question, but uh, just uh, a little somewhat theological as well, but uh, it'll be, man, trust, trust it will challenge you. And the question is this, what is a Christian's greatest 
responsibility before God. What is, if you're a Christian, what is your greatest responsibility before God? You think about all the responsibilities the Word of God reveals to us, all the things that it teaches us, uh, and you could come up with several good answers. I'm not going to lie. We won't uh, divide the church because we come with different answers. Some of you may come with the answer that because you probably have been very well catechized, you say, well, I know the chief end of man, and it is to glorify God, to delight in my creator, uh, to bring glory to him, right? So you might think that, our, the, <laughs> that a Christian's greatest responsibility is to glorify God by manifesting the image of God that is in us, to become more like Christ. And you can make a fair argument for that. Now, another one of us might say that uh, our greatest responsibility is, in light of the Great Commission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That that's what we're about as Christians, as a church, as, a, as individual Christians. We need to make disciples, teach others to follow Jesus and how they might follow Jesus so that they might make disciples. And while these two are, are very good exa- ex- answers that you could give, I would imagine that there's a, some of you, probably a good number of you, that might have answered this way. And this is what I would answer. I would hold that the Christian's greatest responsibility before God is to love him. To love him. Anybody give that answer? Anybody think about that? To love him with our heart, with our soul, with our mind and our strength. To love him with all our being. That is the greatest responsibility. That is what God revealed in his word desires of all of us who follow him. We can make a good argument that based upon what Jesus said, right? When asked what is the greatest commandment, what is the most foremost commandment, what is the chief commandment, what's the first commandment, he answered, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? And then he added, then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he summarizes it upon these two commandments, to love God with all our being and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that these two summarize, depend the whole law and prophets. So if I were to summarize the Bible, I could argue that this book calls us as human beings, as those who come to know Christ, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love God. So a chief concern of a Christian ought always to be, often to be, how well are we loving our God. This morning, as you're sitting here, as you come here today, and I imagine most of us here will have named the name of Jesus Christ, profess to, to, to follow after Jesus Christ, I would ask us, can you say that you love God with all your being, with all of who you are, in every aspect of life? I would imagine if most of us here are honest with ourselves, you're thinking, as I wrestled with this passage this week, I think we'd all probably would answer that, you know, I don't. There's areas of my life that I, I don't love him. I haven't yielded to him. I don't love consistently him with all my heart, my soul, mind, and strength. There are times when I love myself more than I love God. I love other things more than I love God. Jesus himself warned the church of this. It's not a, a new danger it's a quite a common danger. Remember when he wrote to the churches in, of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, he wrote to the church of Ephesus. By all our means, a great church, a Bible church, really, a church that has sound doctrine. They did not let any heresy enter the church. 
They taught their Bible classes. They had Sunday school classes. They preached the word expositorily. Uh, you know, they had biblical doctrine, biblical theology. Uh, they were sound. But what did Jesus say about this church? I have one thing against you. His one condemnation of the church in Ephesus was that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. You see, it is possible to be a Bible-teaching, Bible-holding, Bible-believing church and yet fail and forget to love God. That's what the church of Ephesus did. That's not just churches, but it's even as we as individuals can. And Jesus would have us love, return to our first love. And I think for many of us here, we realize that we, we, as we don't love God as we ought, that we want to love God more. And we examine our lives, we can probably look at things and realize there are areas in our life where it's other people, other pursuits, other passions in our life that we love more than we love God. And that we spend more time devoted to those things than we spend time with God. We treasure those things more than we treasure God. Our passage today causes us to examine our love for God. It's a passage that I think that all of us can, can, can relate to. It's a text that I hope will encourage you. And in this series of exchanges between Jesus, a Pharisee, and a sinful woman, we learn a key lesson towards loving God more. A very important lesson, that if we want to love God more, and, we're, and we realize we're, I'm not loving God as I ought, I want to love him more, what do I need to remember? What's, that, what's the truth that I need to keep in mind? And that's what this text teaches us today. We're going to look at that. We're going to observe the, the contrast uh, particularly between Pharisaic religion and fervent love for Christ. There's a contrast between the two in our text. This passage, as we look at it, is gonna, uh, break, it can easily break down into four distinct parts, four sections. Each section will conclude with an evaluation. Sometimes it's an evaluation uh, by the Pharisee. Sometimes it's an evaluation by Jesus. And as we look at that, we can then define our, uh, come to a, a basic outline of this text of four exchanges between Jesus and this Pharisee and revolving uh, the sinful women that help us, encourage us to move away from the Pharisaic religion that we sometimes readily fall into and move towards a, a fervent love for Christ. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, let's take a look then at this text and, and these four exchanges that help us move away from Pharisaic religion, from a dead religion, but to a, a fervent, passionate Love for our Christ, our Savior. All right, let's move along. Let's move, look at point number one is found in verse 36 to 39. And in this first exchange, we see an exchange between Jesus and this Pharisee. And we really focus on and it reveals to us the Pharisee's religion, the Pharisee's religion. Look at verse 36 with me at the text. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, that is Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. The first character we note here is one of the Pharisees. And it's really important at this point to remember, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was one of the religious kind of factions within Judaism. Sort of like today, there was two, two there's you know, a couple other ones, but two primary ones. Uh, there's the, the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. It might equate today to those who are a Bible-believing, conservative, biblical-teaching, believing Christians, and those who are maybe liberal, who don't believe the Bible. They, they say they're Christians, but they don't believe the Bible anyways, or they pick and choose what they believe in the Bible. These were the difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were the Bible-believing Jews. They wanted to uphold the, 
the law. They wanted to keep the law, and they made a whole bunch of traditions so that they would not break the law. In fact, the word Pharisees meant the separated ones. And that kind of tells you a little bit about who they are. Their desire, if we uh, understand them, give them a fair shake, is that they decided to be holy. They wanted to be separated from sin. They didn't want to have anything to do with sin. They didn't want to be corrupted by, by sinners or by sin in their lives. And so they made a lot of extra rules so that they would not be unclean or unholy. They saw themselves as being more pious than the average Jew, more pious definitely than the Sadducees who didn't even believe much of the Bible or the Old Testament, and certainly more godly than the sinners of their day, the sinners who were those who didn't even practice the law, didn't even observe the law of God. What's more, up to this point, Luke has already shown us that the leading opposition to Jesus' ministry was among these Pharisees. It's among the the Bible-believing Jews. They had criticized him often. They criticized his ability to forgive sins. They criticized him for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They criticized him for healing on the Sabbath. And so they were opposed to Jesus, clearly. And they saw themselves as better than what Jesus was teaching and offering. For some unstated reason here, we find then it's quite surprising that this Pharisee, we later learn his name is Simon. We'll, we'll find that there's a purpose to that. But the Pharisee he's described as now invites Jesus to dine with him. He invites Jesus to his home for dinner. And usually when you invite someone home for dinner, that means you, you kind of like that person or you, 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 know, you, you want to get to know, like him more. And so for whatever reason, maybe you might think that this Pharisee's interest, maybe he's like Nicodemus, maybe someone who's actually interested, maybe he's a, a, like part of the Sanhedrin, maybe like Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's, he's a, kind of for Jesus. But what we're going to see in this text is that he actually has a bit of hostility towards Jesus in how he treats Jesus. He actually keeps some distance from Jesus, as we'll see. He's definitely not inviting Jesus out of love or thankfulness. Still, Jesus accepts the invitation and enters the house and, and sits down or lies down to dine with him. In those days, uh, this, this would probably have been a, a wealthier person who had a, a house with a courtyard. And this court in the middle of the courtyard where would have been placed the table where they would, guests could have come and would, would, would lie down around for them to recline and eat. The doors of, to this courtyard would have been left open because this was, Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, it was not uncommon that the people in the town were allowed to come in and to maybe stand around the outskirts in this courtyard so they could listen in on what the rabbi or the teacher had to say. And that's what people would come and go. Now, as far as the table, it would have been a low-lying table, and so the guests would have sat, probably lied down, laid down on low-lying couches. They would lie down on their left elbow while they ate with their right. And so their feet, naturally, would extend away from the table, uh, and everyone's just kind of eating kind of a low, low. Very, it's more of a formal uh, kind of a meal. All this will be kind of more uh, important as we look further into the text. And in verse 37, we now get to introduce a second character. We see the Pharisee. Now we see this sinful woman. Verse 37, 38, look at there with me. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the the hair of her head. 
The woman here is not named. She remains anonymous throughout the, the story. But we're told very clearly that she was known in the city. She had a reputation. She had a reputation for being a sinner. Most likely, she was a prostitute. And in any case, she has a reputation among all the Pharisees, among all the people in the, in the town, that she was one who was a sinner, a sinful woman. But nevertheless, when she learns that Jesus is at this dinner, she hears and she is overcome by some drive that caused her to attend this meeting, this dinner, to stand on the, come in to the, enter into the courtyard. And along with her in this courtyard, she is bringing with her an alabaster vial of perfume. Alabaster is a, is a type of kind of a rock. It's a expensive, maybe like jade, something expensive. So you usually with alabaster vials, you wouldn't just put common, you know, you wouldn't put like soy sauce in there or something like that. Something, you know, you'd put something expensive, some expensive thing in this alabaster jar. And... Um, the parallel passages in um, Matthew and Mark mention the, the expensiveness of, of the jar of perfume. And so this would have been very similar, an expensive jar. But nevertheless, it was, just as we read this text and you kind of picture it, does it not make you a little feel uncomfortable? You know, just imagine someone came in today and just came, you're, came to you right where you're at and then started crying over your feet and then wiping your feet with her hair and then pouring perfume on your feet. You know, as awkward it is for us to think that that for, for us today, it was just as awkward in that day as well. It was uncommon. She was breaking uh, some social customs in that day. It was a normal practice, but the picture is quite vivid. There's a, there's a fervency here, uh, a, a passion here that is willing to ignore all the, the social customs and mores in that day to do this one thing for Jesus. Now, verse 39 tells us what the Pharisee thought about all this. This is now the first evaluation. Pharisee has seen this happen. He's, he's brought Jesus in, and all of a sudden this woman comes in, and uh, she's, she's wiping his feet the, his, uh, with her hair. She's a uh, She's weeping. She's crying over it. She's, and he's looking at all this, and, and he's like, this, this is all wrong by his judgment, by his standard. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee judges Jesus, doesn't he? Now, remember, word had spread, according to chapter 7, verse 16, that Jesus was a great prophet because of all the miracles that he was doing. Now, the Pharisee's words express basically doubt of that truth. He doesn't think that Jesus is a great prophet. In fact, the, even the, uh, the, the, grim, the grammar here indicates that he really doesn't believe. He says, if this man were prophet, and, and by the way, I, I, he doesn't really think he is at a, even. He says, this man, Jesus, would know what kind of woman this was that was touching him, that she was a sinner. And the implication is that if he knew she was a sinner, if he really was a rabbi, if he really was a godly man, if he was a pious man, if he was a prophet, then he would tell this woman to get away from me. Don't touch me because you're a sinner. And I don't have anything to do with sinners. That's, that's the Pharisee's religion. Separation. Separated ones. 
in his mind, to be pleased in, in the Pharisee's mind, to be pleasing to God. And, and might we also say that the way that he showed his love for God was to remain separate and unstained by sin, to be holy, have nothing but to do with those who were unclean or sinners. Quite opposite from what Jesus does, isn't it? The Pharisee thought that Jesus should have rejected this woman. Instead, Jesus allows her to do what she does. For the Pharisee, that was simply evidence that Jesus was the kind of person who they thought he was. Yes, he was a man who ate and drank with tax gatherers and sinners. And if you eat with tax gatherers and sinners, then what does that make you? A sinner. That's what he believed about Jesus. Now, he was wrong, of course. But Jesus answers the charge of the Pharisee with a parable. And this is our second point in verses 40 to 43. Jesus tells a parable. Verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Notice the, the, it was the Pharisee who doubted that Jesus was the prophet, right? He said, but notice how he expressed it. He, was said, he said it to himself. He was, it was in his thoughts. At, at most, he might have whispered to himself, if this man were a prophet, but he was saying it to himself so quietly in his thoughts. And yet, Jesus knows his thoughts, and Jesus answers him. And we see here that Jesus addresses him directly and says, Simon. Because Jesus is at this table, and there's all sorts of people who have come to listen to Jesus, but Jesus wants to make clear that what he's about to say is for Simon and in light of what Simon has just been thinking in his mind. Because Jesus is basically showing Jesus, showing, showing Simon that, yes, you're wrong. I am a prophet. And he's going to tell, and he's going to correct him even through this parable. And Jesus addresses this Pharisee directly to, by name. Others are present, but Jesus' parable is meant directly for him. It's meant directly for those kind of people who think like this Pharisee, that think that one's religion is measured by how much we stay away from sin or measured by how much we stay away from sinners, and that is a reflection of our love for God. Let's take a look at this parable then. The parable is in verse 41 to 42. It's a real short parable. And Jesus says this parable, a money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50, and when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? It's a simple, basic parable. I love it. Jesus is real straightforward. And, and, and the parable is directed towards Simon. And so there's a, even as we look at this parable, there are, there, he's, Jesus is trying to use each of these different elements to describe a very specific thing. There is a, there's a money lender here, right? There are two debtors here, two people who owe money to this money lender. Each owes a, a different amount, but nevertheless, both owe a considerable debt. Now, in those days, a denarius, or denarii in, in the plural, was equivalent to one day's wage for a common laborer. So one owed 500 days of wages. That's about a year and a half, considering that they probably rested every seventh day. The other owed 50 days of wages. That's about two months' wages. Now, considering that the average wage in those days was barely enough to survive, both debts amounted to an insurmountable debt. And as Jesus tells it, they were unable to repay. 
they couldn't pay their debt. You know, just to kind of give us a little perspective on this, if we calculated the amount, just say we used a common day laborers, so we measure by our minimum wage, and thankfully San Francisco has high, one of the higher minimum wages in our country, but even that, it's not that much, right? I think 15, 39, or something like that. But if you calculate the amounts by today's minimum wage, one owed essentially $6,200, and the other owed $62,000. Either way, right, if you are making minimum wage in this and living in this city, you're not going to pay off $6,200 or $62,000 anytime soon. But the amazing thing is, in the story, is that the money lender graciously forgives them both. When was the last time you forgave someone of $6,200 or $62,000? What would happen if you forgave someone that amount? Well, you can imagine what Jesus' point is he's going to make here. And Jesus asked the question, which of the debtors will love the moneylender more? He's graciously forgiven them both. One of 500 denarii, one of 50 denarii, but which of them is going to love, Jesus, love the moneylender more? I'm getting ahead of myself. Simon answered, verse 43, and now here's the evaluation. This is Simon's evaluation of, uh, of the story. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Simon answers this question intuitively and correctly, that the one whom was forgiven more would love more, even as you and I can imagine this very same thing today. This mer- the, certainly, this parable is meant to teach Simon a lesson. The moneylender is God, right? The debtors, in this case, are the woman and Simon. Yes, her sins are greater than his. She has the greater debt. She has, has a reputation for, for living in sin, whereas he has been striving to live in holiness. But make no mistake, he's a sinner too. And both owe a debt that they cannot repay to God. Now, and Simon, and answering his question, and Jesus' question, condemns himself. Do you see how he condemns himself? Because if one had asked Simon at this very moment, one got, you, you could stop right there and say, Simon, who loves God more, you or this woman? How do you think Simon would have answered? I love God more right? And why would he base that upon? Because why? Because I have striven to obey God's commandments more. I have uh, kept myself holy and unstained from sin. I stay away from sinners. I have done this and that and that. And by the way, you get to immediately think of the the parable of the, the, the publican and the tax gatherer and the Pharisee later on, Luke 18. But nevertheless, he would say that he loves more based upon all the things that he has done all the, the, the holy life that he's lived. On that basis, he believes that he loved God more, God more. Whereas she did not because she lived a sinful life. But Jesus' question and Simon's answer tear down Simon's faulty thinking. Because it wasn't Simon that loved God more, was it? It was the woman by his very answer. Because she was the one whom God forgave more. She was the one who recognized the greatness of her sin and how much greater was her forgiveness by God. See, here's an important principle that to remember when we think about loving God. 
See, loving God is not what you do for God. Loving God is not what you do for God. Remember that, okay? We might measure our love for God by what we do for God, but don't confuse the two. Loving God is not what you do for God. Loving God is a response to what God has done for you. Okay? Loving God is what, a response of our lives to what God has done for us. It's a, it's a different focus because you can do all the things that God wants you to do. You can obey the commands. And we all know, to, how do you show you love God? Well, by keeping all my commandments, right? John 14, 21. But nevertheless, you can, keep, you can strive to keep the commandments like the Pharisees and just treat God like garbage as he does Jesus here. Loving God is a response to what God has done. This woman has shown greater love. And that segue, Simon's answer segues into this pouring out of this woman's love, which Jesus points out in verses 44 to 47. We see now the, the, how Jesus brings out and just points out the, the woman's greater love, really, more, more than Simon's love. And over the next three verses, in 44 through 46, Jesus will point out three visible ways that the woman's love for Jesus was greater than Simon's love for Jesus. First of all, he points out that she washed his feet. She washed Jesus' feet. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he saw the woman. Everybody saw the woman. She didn't belong there. She was unholy. Everybody knew so, but here she had entered your, I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon was the host. He had invited Jesus as a guest to his house, but he did not treat Jesus like a guest at all. It was customary uh, for the host to offer his guests water to wash their feet. It's kind of like uh, you ever go to some many homes. Uh, I think I'm not sure if it's a Chinese custom, but a lot of times, at least I think it is, because my parents taught to me. It could have been a Filipino custom. I'm not sure. But anyways, whenever people come over to our home, one of the first things they'd offer to people was what? Some tea, some cha. Would you like some cha? Would you like some water? Something to drink. It's first thing. It's like it's like automatic. You got to offer something to drink. Like what is that? I mean, and of course, there's some value in whatever my family's culture is uh, that. When people come over your home, you've got to offer them some water. Here, of course, this is not water to drink. In those days, it was very customary for the host to offer his guests water, but water not to drink, but water to wash their feet. Because in those days, if people walk around sandals, dusty, dirty roads, not paved roads like yours and mine today, right? And their feet would be dirty. And in one way, as they come to the house, uh, the host, out of courtesy, would give water so that the individuals could wash their feet before they sat down for a meal. That would be making them more comfortable, certainly. If the host was wealthy, they might provide servants to do the washing of the feet. Slaves. And that's why uh, what Jesus does in John 13 at the Last Supper is so amazing. He takes on the role of a slave and washes the disciples' feet. Nevertheless, in contrast to what Simon doesn't do, Jesus points out what the woman does. He says, the woman... She has, you've not given me any water, but she's given me water. She's giving me her tears. And she's wiped my feet, not with a cloth, but with her hair. In contrast to Simon, her love is demonstrate, demonstrably greater, greater, a greater humility in his demonstration of love. And not only that, but secondly, she, her love is greater because she kissed his feet. Verse 45. 
You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. She hasn't stopped. Another custom was to greet one's guest with a kiss on the cheek. Uh, in fact, New Testament epistles often tell us to greet one another with a holy kiss. In our days, right, when someone comes over to your house, uh, one of the things when, when they come knocking at the door, what do you do when you open the door? You greet one another by name. At least you ought to. If you come to my house and you knock on my door and say, oh, hey, uh, yeah, what's up? And then you just leave the door and come on in. You, uh, hopefully, you might be offended by that. Or not. But we, it was common to greet one another with a kiss. And Simon does not greet Jesus with a kiss. But Jesus, in contrast, points out that the woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Both times, here as well as the re- early reference in verse uh, 38, I believe, it describes a kissing that, it's not just a one-time kiss, like, oh, kiss the ring of the Godfather, you know, and then you're gone, right? This is like kissing continually, nonstop. She was, as she was wiping her feet, she was kissing. It's kind of like when you have a little baby, you know, you can't help it. You're just kissing them because you just love them so much, right? It's nonstop. That's what she was doing. She was kissing his feet continually. And yeah, that, that's uncomfortable thinking about that. It's a, a display of love that goes beyond, I would imagine, what most of us are willing to do. But it was what she did. Thirdly, she showed her greater love by anointing Jesus' feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Again, uh, it was customary for hosts to, uh, as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a sign of kind of refreshment for the guests to, to allow, put some oil over their head, olive oil is the idea. Uh, you see it in the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23, 5, thou hast prepared a table before me uh, in, uh, in presence of my enemies, and thou anointest my, I'm King James, anoint my, anoint my head with oil. And this, it's a, uh, it, you know, that's kind of odd for us today, but you just imagine maybe it was to have, you know, in a hot kind of weather, it was just kind of nice to have some little olive oil, you know, kind of, um, you know, like lotion moisturizing the skin or the head, uh, perhaps, you know, but it was the custom. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, but this woman has anointed Jesus' feet. She couldn't reach his head because it's at the tab- front of the table with- where all the people are eating, but she's anointed his feet with perfume. There's a really clear contrast here between this woman and Simon, is that her love is demonstrated greatly by what she gives. The emphasis really in these three texts is what is given. Water you did not give me, but she's been giving me her tears. A kiss you did not give me, but she's been kissing me nonstop. Oil you have not given me, but she has been anointing my feet with perfume. This is clear contrast. A demonstration, a life of love shows itself in what we give, right? Yeah, you can imagine that. It's what we give. She's nothing held back for this woman as she shows love to Jesus. By all outward evidence, she loved Jesus Christ more, right? Her love was great. It's why even you think about it um, in the parallel passages, because her love, uh, the, the Mary uh, or the woman who anoints Jesus in those other parallel passages, really her demonstration would be spoke of forever because it was such a great display of love and sacrificial love, humble love. It's not the Pharisee, surprisingly, it's not the Pharisee, not the religious leader of Israel who is loving Jesus. 
But it's this sinner who is loving Jesus. And we understand why. And Jesus explains, gives the, the explanation for this in verse 47. It's Jesus. And now Jesus is offering the evaluation. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And here we find the key verse to this whole passage. If you're not into highlighting your Bible, this is the verse you highlight, okay? Jesus acknowledges that, yes, the woman's sins are many. She's had many sins, but he adds, they have been forgiven, for she loved much. Now, I want to quickly correct any misinterpretation of that statement. She, her sins have, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. First reading, one might wrongly interpret, it, interpret that her many sins have been forgiven because or on the basis of the fact that she loved much. That because she loved, therefore her, she, her sins are forgiven. That would be wrong. That would be contrary to what the scripture teaches because there's nowhere that it's taught that any, any good works or even acts of, whether acts of love can be the basis of forgiveness. That is a salvation by works, salvation by deeds. Titus 3.5, just as a reminder to us, tells, teaches us about how God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. God saves according to his mercy, according to his grace. What's more, just to confirm that this is not a salvation by works, and this cannot mean a salvation by, by love, is that in the previous parable, the parable itself explains that love is a response to forgiveness. Who loves the moneylender more? The one who has been forgiven more, right? So forgiveness comes before, precedes love. In fact, what's more, the Greek grammar here conveys this. The word forgiven is in the Greek, it's the Greek perfect tense. And I've mentioned it over here once in a while. But this word, the neat thing about any time you see a perfect tense is it has this cool connotation of like something took place in the past. Probably in the past for you here. In the past. And it has a continuing effect all the way to the present. So something took place in the past that continues to have its impact to this very moment. That's the perfect tense. And forgiven is in that tense. And so this woman's sins had been forgiven and they continue to this very point. And that is why at this moment, she loved much. She loves because her sins had been forgiven. The woman most likely at some point had heard Jesus' teaching, probably heard John the Baptist's teaching. She had come to believe in the gospel. She had repented of her sins. She had placed her faith in Jesus as the Messiah. She heard about the, the gospel of how one can enter the kingdom of God. She had heard about how Jesus eats with tax gatherers and sinners, yes, even sinners like her. And she had come and she had heard and she'd heard a message of grace, a message of mercy, a message of love, and she believed upon him. And she understood that her sins were forgiven. And so out of love for Jesus, because her sins are forgiven, she sought him out, she brought the most probably the most precious thing she had. And she brought it to give to Jesus. Her love is, is a reflection of her awareness of her forgiveness. She loved much because she was forgiven much. 
She was very much aware of her sin. Every eye in the room, every glare as she walked in would remind her that of her sinfulness. Every day in the city as she walked about, people would treat her as being someone who was to be avoided. And here she hears this message of forgiveness in Christ and she is overwhelmed by love because of the great love which has been shown to her. And she comes to show love to Jesus. Know, by the way, that her love is directed at Jesus because her sins have been forgiven by Jesus. And we'll see that significance because Jesus, why Jesus can forgive sins, because he's God. Now, conversely, Jesus now speaks words of warning to Simon. She, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. But then at the end of the verse, he says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And by the way, there's a correction in the title if you saw it in your outline, in your program today. He who is forgiven little loves little, okay? Make sure you write that down. Correct that if you... Simon's problem is that he doesn't think of himself as a sinner. He doesn't think he's a sinner like this woman. He doesn't think that he needs much forgiveness. In fact, he thinks, probably thinks he's doing a great job already. He's doing a pretty good job keeping holy, walking in purity, uh, being separate from sinners and sin, keeping the, the, the many traditions that, that uh, the Pharisees have come up with. He's okay with God, he thinks. And so because he doesn't realize how much of his sins he needs to be forgiven, it shows in his little love, or we might even say his lack of love. Because Jesus had, came, had come to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, right? Luke 177. But this man does not know that he needs forgiveness of sins. Simon is not aware. He doesn't think of He has a Pharisaic religion. He's measured his righteousness by what he's been doing, by all the things, by the laws and the traditions I've been keeping. And for sure, I, when he compares himself and contrasts himself with this sinner of a woman, oh, he's definitely better than her. Do you have that kind of religion? Do you measure your Love for God, you think, because all that you do for God. Because, well, I go to church every Sunday. I give tithes and regularly. I sing the songs really loud. You should see me express myself. I serve in, in this ministry on Friday, and I serve on this ministry on Wednesday, and I serve on this ministry on Tuesday. I listen to all YouTube sermons. We're measuring ourselves by what we do. If our love is measured by what we do, you're in danger of being a little off. You can do that. We'll get there. We'll, it's your potential danger, like the Pharisees, thinking, confusing love for God with what we do for God. Think Mary and Martha as well. Here's where I want to just draw our application for today. A key lesson for loving God more. You, want to, you realize, I need to love God more. How do you love God more? Here's the key lesson. It's by recognizing and remembering how much we have been forgiven. Remembering how much we have been forgiven. You know, as you look upon your love for God, perhaps the reason that you and I do not love God with all our being is because you've forgotten how much of a sinner you are. You've forgotten. You know, maybe you're here, you're, you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 
40, 50 years. You've forgotten the, the path of destruction that you were on. You've forgotten the, the hateful thoughts, the evil deeds, the mockery of the things of God. You've forgotten how of the arrogant pride, the dependence upon self. You've forgotten about how you pursued things at other people's expense. You've forgotten what you were willing to say and what you're willing to do to others. You've forgotten what a sinner you were and what God saved you from in Christ. You've taken the gospel for granted. Or perhaps even more, you've forgotten what kind of sinner you still are. You forget and you've taken, you think the sins that you, well, you know, you excuse it because, well, I know God's gracious, it'll be all forgiven, it's all good. You've forgotten that you are a helpless sinner, the chief of all sinners even. You've forgotten that you are an unworthy sinner who desperately needed God's mercy and accept for the fact that God showed mercy upon you and opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel of glory in the light of Christ, that you would be dead in your sins today. The solution to a lack of love, a little love, is to reflect on your need for forgiveness in Christ, how much you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reflect on your salvation. Reflect on how much it costs to forgive you of your sins because it cost Jesus his life. Because he who is forgiven much loves much. And he who is forgiven little or thinks he's forgiven little loves little. The passage ends with a fourth exchange, but this time between Jesus and the woman, and we end with Jesus' forgiveness. It's forgiveness of those women, and really, uh, this is kind of just a, a, an epilogue to this whole exchange. Then, verse 48, then he said to her, he turns to the woman, he addresses her now, this exchange between Jesus and the woman. He says, your sins have been forgiven. Jesus reiterates to the woman what she already knows. It's the same exact wording as, as earlier, right? It's perfect tense. Your sins have been They've already been forgiven. And the, that Jesus states it again is perhaps an indication of why this woman has been crying. You know, we, we're never told why she's crying. Why is she weeping at Jesus' feet? But we can all imagine that she's weeping out of thankfulness. She's weeping because maybe she's, she's, by how she, Jesus tells her she's been forgiven, but everyone else and how they treat her makes her feel that she's still guilty because she, she still has this reputation. She's still this sinner and nobody wants to be around her. And she feels, and, and not only do they make her feel it, but she herself may feel the condemnation. Remember when you were a new Christian? How you wrestled with your sins? And you think, oh man, how can Jesus forgive me of the sins that I have committed? I've committed some terrible sins. But Jesus tells her in his pastoral love what she needs to hear. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins are many. But your sins, as many as they are, have all been forgiven. I want to encourage it to all of us here. Maybe you're here and you have believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you may be wrestling even now with guilt about your past sins. And I don't know what your sins are, but if you're a human being, 
Guilt is one of those natural responses to sin, especially as a believer in Christ. We feel guilt about those things. We feel guilt about the past. And sometimes you may be, you know, beating yourself up for that. You see, you see yourself as a sinner instead of a sinner saved by grace. And, but this encouragement is for those of you who are sinners, who have believed upon Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You can be sure that all your past sins have been forgiven. All of them, every one of them. However terrible it might have been. And but what's more, all your sins right now, in your life right now, when you confess them to Jesus, are forgiven. And all your sins that you're going to commit in the future have been forgiven in Christ. That is how great your forgiveness is. And that's, that's why, and, that, and when we think about that, we remember that, it, causes us to really, it should cause us to want to love him more, to appreciate Jesus even more. For all time. Once more, but then as Jesus makes the statement to this woman, your sins have been forgiven, it once again draws the, the, the opposition of the Pharisees uh, at the table. Those who were, verse 29, those who were reclining, at the table with them, began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? That wording is real similar to what was stated in Luke 5.21. When the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, remember he healed the paralytic, and they then said, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Basically, they're just simply saying, who does this guy think he is? Going around telling people their sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins, and we know he's not God. He's not even a prophet. He's not a holy man. He eats and dines with sinners. Nevertheless, what they refused to believe is that Jesus was the Son of God. They could not see it. They, they were blinded to the truth, that he was the God of gods, the God of all creation, the God who took on the form of man so that he might come and live and die on the cross for our sins. And whatever sins you have ever committed, Jesus on the death on the cross is sufficient to forgive you of your sins, all of them. If you respond with repentance and faith, it was sufficient for this woman and it is sufficient for you. And in verse 50, we, Jesus ends, and he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A final confirmation that she was not saved by her display of love, by her works, but she was saved by the response of faith faith in Jesus Christ. She believed Jesus and it was reckoned to her. As righteousness. It was counted to her as righteousness, just as it was for Abraham. The response of faith. Now, keep in mind that it's, she, is, she was saved by this response of faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. She's not saved by the act of faith, per se, but she's saved by the object of her faith. It's much like, oh, let me see something here. Oh, okay. Oh, it looks random. I might believe with all my heart that this Purell hand sanitizer can save me and wash away all my sins. But no matter how sincerely, how devotedly, how passionately I believe it, is it going to wash away my sins? This is where you say no. Yeah, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, we can start a cult right now, okay? But the reality is it's faith in Jesus Christ. 
who died on the cross in place of us that saves us from sin. And that's what saves It's the object of faith. This woman had peace with God, had shalom. She could have walk away with assurance, this assurance that her sins are forgiven. Because of why? Because she had put her faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ who was sent to die for our sins. And the question for all of us is, do you? Do you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ? And if you don't, Jesus welcomes you, invites you to put your faith in him to recognize that you're a sinner in need, a desperate need of forgiveness, that through faith in Christ, you can have that forgiveness. Well, let me just conclude summary quickly. Pharisaic religion sees love for God as simply what we do for God. It just simply stops there at what we do. And it's nothing, there's an element of that that's true. Where you measure your love by what we do, but don't equate the two. You can't equate it. Let me give you an illustration. If you ask me, uh, do I love my wife, Cindy? I know, I'm going to get trouble for this because I didn't ask her permission. But, um, and I start to tell you, well, yeah, of course I love my wife, Cindy. I'll tell you how I love my wife. I take out the trash. I, uh, every day I wash the dishes. Every day I, I pick up my socks once in a while. Uh, I, you know, I, you know I, will, I will make sure I, I fix, get the cars fixed. Oh, yeah, I will, you know, I'm going to, all these, and I started listing all the things that I do for her. All you guys are like, yeah, oh, you really do love her, huh? <laughs> no, I know you guys are godly mature. You're not like that. But the women in here is like, uh-uh. <laughs> and you're like, don't you be like that, okay, to your husbands, all right? Because my wife, uh, you would know that I love my wife because I treasure her. I treasure her that I want to be with her. I want to talk to her. I want to listen to her. I want to give my life for her. And having said all that, I know I don't really do that to the extent that I ought to. Nor does any husband, thankfully. But our love is expressed is an aff- that affection and devotion of the heart that seeks the, the nearness of the object of love and the good and glory of that object of our love. It's what this woman does. She hears Jesus in, is in her town, and she doesn't care what everybody else thinks. She just comes. She wants to be near Jesus. And what does she do? She wants to give to Jesus, and she brings the most valuable thing she has to him. She just wants to be, with, to be with him, to hear with him, to be close to him. And that is, and that's what she does. That's love. See, fervent love for God sees itself as a response to what God has done for us in Christ. It's a response. Yes, the, it is, we, we do believe what the scripture t- says, that how do we know we love? By keeping his commandments, right? By following the commands, by observing the commandments. So we understand uh, that, we, that we, it shows in, in, in love. And when we show our love for God, it mostly shows in how we show love for our neighbors. That's why Jesus says it's our, the second greatest commandment. Loving our brothers and sisters, our neighbors as ourselves, loving the strangers in our midst, loving our enemies, even. But don't forget that all these acts of love doesn't, isn't going to result in God loving us more. Right? It's not that God's going to love us more because we love him or we love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Because God's love for you will never change. And that's the wonderful thing. God's love for you has been, de- uh, since eternity past, when he chose you to predestine you before uh, the adoption has his sons and his daughter and daughters, will never change. He will never love you more. He will never love you less. He will never stop loving you. And because of this great love, that's why we want to love him. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Whatever love we show, whatever it's going to be, because remember what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in saving us. And therefore, that, and we remember that. We reflect it. We preach the gospel to ourselves, as we like to say. Or when we're taking communion on a regular basis, we remember the gospel. Or when you hear it in the preaching of the word, or you're reading it in the Bible, as you're, you're, uh, you're thinking about it as you pray. Every time we reflect upon the gospel, it should cause us to be more and more thankful and more and more in love with our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that will cause us to want to live our lives, to be near him, to hear him, to speak with him, and to give our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this encouragement for us to love you more. And Lord, I'm pretty sure in this room there's not a single person who would say that we, we do love you perfectly with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's so much, Father, in our lives that we were so many things, objects, people, possessions, pursuits, passions, that we love more than you at times. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not loving you as we ought. But help us, as we've learned today, to reflect upon the forgiveness that we have in Christ, how much we have been forgiven, that we would never forget that, and that that would drive our love for you. Lord, increase our love. Increase our love so that not only that you might be glorified, but increase our love so that the world might know that we are your disciples. And increase our love so that the love that we show for you and the love that we show for our neighbors and for the, our enemies as well might be a love that draws others to your great love. That they might know you too. The peace that comes from having faith in Jesus Christ. Father, these things we pray in the name of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.